Welcome to the Paragol Podcast. This is Jared Pitney. And today, I'm excited to be joined by Al Brunberg. Al, thanks so much for coming on. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I, I'm really looking forward to uh, sharing my story with you. Yeah, we have a, a mutual friend in Bill Fisher who is kind of, I would say, like Paragol Hall of Fame. I've tried to get him on the, the podcast several times. And every time I'm like, hey, Bill, you want to come on the podcast? He's like, I don't have anything to say, but I'll tell you who you need to get. You need to get Al Brumberg. And so uh, I'm excited to have you on because I know that um, you're from, not from Paragold, from another, uh, you're from Poland. And your family was there, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, whenever Nazi Germany invaded, is that correct? That is correct. Actually, uh, it, it's a little more involved than that. My family originally were um, cast out of Spain during the uh, uh, Spanish Inquisition. Originally, they went to uh, uh, France, which was France at that time. Uh, um, At that point, pretty much most Jews actually went to the Mediterranean countries, Italy, Greece. um, You know, some of them actually went back to uh, what was Palestine at that time. But uh, there's been a continuous Jewish presence in Palestine for over 5,000 years. So they never completely left. They were cast into the diaspora, and that's how they ended up in Spain. So anyway, this is a little background. But my family actually ended up in Germany. And uh, at that point, um, they weren't allowed to own land. You know, So basically, most Jews became... Uh, artisans, uh, prof- professional people, doctors, lawyers, accountants, mm-hmm. uh, and you know they they weren't they really wanted to you know farm the land, but they couldn't. So the the time in in Germany was very uh, tenuous. I mean, you never knew what to expect. There were pogroms. There were uh, the you know the the um, crusaders came through and killed thousands of Jews. You know, I mean, the Jewish blood just ran all over the land. So basically, uh, after the Worms Massacre, the Polish nobility asked my family and and many others to come to Poland to establish their their middle class because at that time it was uh, uh, serfs and and nobles. It was 2% Paris and 98% uh, uh, Ukraine. You know, uh, th- there were no uh, people that, that were literate. Uh, there were no people that could do the, um, the, the basic tasks that made life livable, like shoe, shoe repair, like uh, uh, milling, like um, uh, tanning, um, baking, sewing. All these things were things that, uh, that these Jews brought to, to that country. Mm. And uh, my family actually settled in... Middle Poland, which was the Warsaw uh, area, they weren't in Warsaw. Jews weren't allowed to live in Warsaw at that time, mm. but they uh, they actually uh, lived in three small villages that were not far from Warsaw. Uh, and my immediate family was in the uh, the area of Stanislavov. And uh, some of these pronunciations are going to be difficult for you to... <laughs> yeah, to, I was to, just sitting there hoping that you didn't ask me to repeat after you. I did not type that in my notes. Stanislavov. Stanislavov. Oh, close. That's how, how we ended up in, in Poland, at any rate. And uh, my mother's family was from uh, Lodz, which is another 
uh, Polish city, actually closer to Germany. And uh, they had lived there for uh, several hundred years. So basically... Uh, so what years did you say they settled in these villages originally? Uh, after the uh, the Worms Massacre, which would have been about the uh, uh, late 1400s. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So they'd been there a long time. And let's see. And when did your parents actually, I guess, they were in the same area whenever Nazi invaded? Or had they moved around? No. No. They... Uh, as I said, both uh, my my uh, uh, families actually were long-standing citizens of the areas they were in. Okay. And uh, my father's family were actually very wealthy. They uh, owned a uh, shoe uh, factory, and uh, he, I mean, large families were pretty well standard at that time. My uh, father's family had thirteen children. He had thirteen brothers wow. and sisters. So uh, again. There were lots of reasons for that. One is that uh, part of Judaism is that you mm-hmm. re- renew your your uh, <laughs> marital vows every Friday night. So you know that was uh, not unusual. But my overall family, I had over two hundred family members on my father's side. Jeez, you know, big which, family. Yeah, they were. It's a big family. So, whenever. How old were your parents whenever Nazi actually invaded, and wh- what year was that? It was 1939, September 1st, 1939. They uh, actually took over all of Poland. They ap- absolutely decimated it within 30 days. So they were, actually Warsaw fell 30 days after the and invasion. See, and, I'm, and I'm unfamiliar with this. Excuse my ignorance. Um, when you say it just decimated, destroyed the area, like, like did – was Poland expecting that attack but could do nothing about it, or was this like completely like by surprise? I mean, Poland was better prepared for war in the 18th century than the 19th century. Was that because of World War One had? No, they just. I mean, again, uh, Poland was kind of a backward country. Uh, they had now the Polish army were were you know completely competent in the in the area that they you know they. They had the courage and they had the, uh, uh, you know, the the brain power to uh, to fight. They just didn't have the weapons. I mean, they were trying to fight tanks with with horses, mm. and uh, so basically, that, that's never going to work. And uh, the Germans came in. They had a plan. They had uh, refined their plan in in the other countries they took over, Czechoslovakia, you know, Austria, mm-hmm. um, when they. Went into the Sudetenland. They, uh, uh, Chamberlain, of course, gave that to them without, without any uh, qualms. So Hitler became adventurous. He figured, you know, they're not going to stop me, and they didn't. Wow. You know, actually, Poland had a treaty with uh, England and France, and if they were invaded, England and France were supposed to come to their, their aid, and they didn't. Ah. So basically, it was. Uh, it was a cakewalk. This is maybe chasing a, l- a little bit of a rabbit, but, um, and I guess I could do this with a Wikipedia search, but I'm interested in your hearing. I'd like to hear your perspective on this. Um, have you, are you familiar with like kind of like how Hitler came into power? Absolutely. He uh, was largely the result of, uh, of World War I. Uh, Germany had been 
pretty well decimated, and uh, they had they had a bad attitude about it. Of course, you know, mm-hmm. they uh, were saddled with incredible uh, reparations, especially from France. You know, to pay for the the destruction they they wreaked you know, during uh, World War One. Um, so they you know couple that with the Great Depression, and people just didn't have food. I mean, they didn't have food. They uh, had no hope. It was, uh, uh, unemployment was close to 50%. And, uh, you know, they, they weren't allowed to have a military. They had a, just a, uh, you know, a hundred thousand, uh, strong military. This is a country of, of 90 million people. And what was the government? What was their government then? Like the Weimar Republic. The Weimar. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, they, um, they actually did pretty well for a while, but uh, then when the depression hit, they couldn't pay the reparations. Uh, people were starving. Uh, you know, basically Hitler was a uh, lifelong anti-Semite, and all his his buddies were too, and uh, virulent. I mean, they hated Jews. What was his vocation? Was he just a politician at this point? What was no? That? He was. Hitler had been a corporal in, in okay. World War II. Okay, so he uh, he had a had a, a a real talent for public speaking, mm. and uh, he became a, a regular public speaker in the the beer halls. That's where they would meet, you know, these discontents, and um, they would um, plan taking over Germany by force. And uh, you know, making it into a right wing uh, country. How many, how many people were rallied behind him when these talks were beginning? Where they were like, "Where this went from being just like a a but who buddies talking like, I think we can actually do this thing." Yeah. Like, how did that momentum build? Because I'm just thinking, how does someone do that? Like, rise up within. Yeah. And then kind of take over. You got to remember that everything they did reeked of brutality. Uh, you know, they uh, again. Hitler took all the malcontents, you know, it started out with maybe a, a couple of hundred followers. Okay. Um, and he would uh, recruit ignorant people, people that uh, uh, with no education, people that, uh, and, and this changed actually uh, a little later on. He, you know, a lot of his uh, uh, main people were college educated, PhDs. But uh, at, at first it was, the strongest, the ones that, uh, you know, could drink the most beer, could fight the best, could, uh, you wow. know, dominate. And that's kind of how, how they got started. They also, at the same time, started this, uh, uh, the, the brown shirts. And they were brutes. They actually, Hitler was the speaker. Hitler was the motivator. The brown shirts were the, the action uh, committee. They would go out and beat, pardon my vernacular, beat the hell yeah. out of store owners, out of uh, uh, you know just normal people, intelligentsia. You know, if you were, uh, he he actually said at one point that uh, the the worst thing that you could be in in uh, Germany was a lawyer because he was going to be the law. Wow. And nobody in Germany at that point, did they just not think he was a threat early on? So they're just like, ah, let him do his thing. And then eventually he got so big, they're like, actually, we couldn't do anything if we wanted to. Exactly. You know, there's several components to that. One is that uh, uh, people didn't take him seriously. 
You know, now something you have to remember is that most German families had a Jewish uh, uh, person in their family at some point. Uh, you know, a grandparent, uh, a cousin. Uh, you know, so basically, uh, they were aware of who they were. It was a very small percentage of the population, but they had assimilated greatly. They actually were part of uh, you know everyday life, and uh, at that point. You know, before the war, before the First World War, German Jews really saw themselves as Germans first and Jews second. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, that changed. But mm-hmm. um, how did they, how did he fund that? Like, how was Hitler funding all this? Basically, they they had several wealthy uh, benefactors, wow. uh, but they also, you know, they I mean, like the brown shirts bought their own uniforms. You know, they didn't. They didn't subsidize them at all. They were just loving being able to go out and beat people up. Well, see, it's one thing to buy shirts, but like, how do you start buying tanks? Well, that that came later, of course. But uh, w- what happened was uh, they started out in Bavaria. And have you been to, to uh, no, Bavaria? sir? It's beautiful, beautiful. I mean, I I just can't believe that God gave such hateful people such a beautiful country. Mm. But uh, what happened was. Uh, they they started there uh, as I mentioned there were some some very wealthy benefactors that helped them you know with uh, with what they needed they, they really never had much money until they started infiltrating the government and they started out they won uh, I think the fir- the first time they really ran they won fifteen seats in the uh, in the Reichstag uh. which is their parliament which is Minuscule. Now, this built and built and built. And they became stronger and stronger. The the uh, brown shirts under the leadership of Ernst Röhm, but he was brutal. Mm. He was actually in uh, in World War One and uh, was decorated for you know for his uh, bravery, as they they uh, call it. But he uh, actually built. An army, they had like 3,000 stormtroopers. 3,000, that's, that's serious. Yeah. You know, now the other thing is everywhere that they gained dominion, they made the population give them their weapons. There were no private weapons in Germany. That, that's significant too because, you know, when you're unable to defend yourself, it makes a huge difference, yeah, and it's a lesson nice. we need to learn here. Mm-hmm. Well, so, and, and, and essentially, I mean, so if I'm, you know, hearing you correctly, I mean, Hitler's promise to the people was power and money, power, respect, um, you know, an, an end to they. They he felt like they had been, uh, you know, poleaxed. They hadn't didn't have any uh, any control over their own lives and their own. Uh, society. So many Germans were really displeased with the Versailles Treaty. Um, and, and when did his when did his talks become radical? From I, from the beginning. I mean, okay. if you look at at uh, films of Hitler speaking, I mean, he's a madman. I, I just can't imagine that anyone would would uh, listen to him. I mean, he you know all these gestures oh, yeah. and the yelling and screaming and. Uh, and hatred, I mean, it, it just, and it wasn't just towards the Jews, it was to everybody. 
Yeah. But he was somehow convinced him he was their savior. Exactly. So tell me from your parents' perspective. I know you were uh, not even, I guess, born yet whenever. No. um, But I know you've heard the stories. Tell me from your parents' perspective, what was that like for them as they begin to hear these, I'm guessing, rumors of Germany's coming, the Nazis are coming, to they have come. And what was life like after that? Well, the Poles have always been the uh, stepping stone for Germany or Russia or whoever was invading. I mean, they spent centuries being conquered by other nations. Now, they knew that the Germans were going to invade. There was, you know, there's no question. Uh, Berlin was white hot with war fever. They, they, you know, the whole thing was they wanted what they called Lebensraum, which means land to live. They never were able to to truly fulfill all the needs of the German people with the land they had. Hmm. So part of Hitler's plan was to take over these other countries, which were filled with, in his words, people that were unworthy of eating, of living, and you know, breathing uh, air. When the, the, the Jewish people, well, Jews and also Poles. I mean, his plan. Hmm was after he uh, annihilated the Poles, he was going to, I mean, the Jews, he was going to do the same to the Poles. Wow. And, uh, you know, he, he he was going to take over Poland, Russia, Lithuania, all those countries, and completely destroy their populations and populate it. Give with, the Germans a place to live. Exactly, exactly. So anyway, they, uh, they knew they were going to be invaded. Uh, my father and his... Younger brother were working in Warsaw at that time. My grandfather had died, so they still had the factory, but uh, uh, they decided to to go to Warsaw and actually pursue other interests. Uh, when the Germans invaded, they both walked back to Stanislavov to make sure that my grandmother was okay, and they had a the youngest brother who was significantly younger than all the others. And he, uh, he was almost a savant. He was, a, 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 you know, a small, three years old. He could play the violin, the piano. He, you know, just he absolutely had a, uh, an incredible gift of being able to uh, play music. And he was a, a sweet kid. Everybody loved him. But uh, she was really kind of beside herself because she didn't know what to do. Uh, actually, one of my aunts lived with her and, of course, the, the little boy. And the aunt had a baby. So uh, basically, um, her husband, and I, I've looked for that guy. I've looked for him all over the world and could never find him. But he just left. He picked up and ran away and left his wife and baby there. And ultimately, they, they, were, they were murdered. But uh, Wow. Um, I, I, they got to Stanislavov, and my uh, grandmother refused to leave. And uh, that's her home. Yeah, they begged her, "Please come with us. Let's try to." And get did they know if they stayed, we're probably going to die, or something bad's going to happen, or was there like talk going on, like if you stay, it's going to be fine? Ultimately, people want to believe that there's a chance to live. Ultimately, people will do anything you know, to, to satisfy that hope that they're going to make it. You know, they're not going to end up like like the German Jews or the Austrians. 
Um, so yeah, she, her, her rationale was that uh, even the Germans are not going to harm old women and little mm. children. And uh, wow. So anyway, she, but she insisted that my father and and uncle try to get away to get to to Russia because there was no question what they do to grown Jewish men. So um, anyway, after, you know, a lot of arguing back and forth and everything, they left. And uh, she gave the wealth she had left, a lot of it had been confiscated by that point, to uh, one of our Polish neighbors who swore that he would take care of Noah. That's my uh, young uncle. That he would hide him, he would feed him, he would take care of him, and uh, and make sure that he didn't fall into the uh, Germans' hands. Well, ultimately, uh, the Germans came and put all the Jews of Stanislavov into the Catholic Church as a staging area before they transferred all these people to uh, to Warsaw, to Warsaw Ghetto, and uh, and then ultimately to Treblinka for gassing. But uh, they, uh, uh, when when they actually did transfer them to Warsaw, uh, this neighbor, Kocheski, uh that was his last name, uh, told my uncle, "You've used up all all the money your mother gave you gave me. Uh, you need to leave." Mm. And this was uh, this was in the winter, and this young boy who had been pampered all his life, who had, had been loved by everybody, suddenly was uh, put into a position where he had to uh, uh, hide in the forest, scavenge for food, mm. manage to keep himself alive. And uh, he did. I mean, amazingly, he did. Wow. But two weeks before the Russians liberated that part of uh, Poland, uh, he was sick. He was starving. And he went to this Kocheski and begged him for a cup of hot water and a piece of bread. And Kocheski said, yeah, sure, sure. You stay right here. I'll be right back. He went and got the uh, Germans, and they took my uncle and killed him. And for that, he was paid a half a pound of sugar. He sold him for half a pound of sugar. Wow. I mean, (laughs) It's ruthless, man. I can't even imagine what that would have been like. When you, how long did your parents live? How old were they? My father died at uh, 83 and my mother died at 87. So you had a lot of time to talk to them about this. I mean, when you hear them, like, I mean, did they look back at this as one of those things that was just like an incredibly traumatic event where they're like, hey, we just kind of did what we did and just kind of made we knew with what we had? I mean, like, how how would they talk about their experience of it? They didn't talk about it. Holocaust survivors didn't really share their experiences with their uh, children. I uh, could speak Polish, and they didn't know that. So I would hear them speak among themselves and other survivors and that's where I really found out most of everything that I know. Now, later, before my father died, he and I spoke quite a bit about uh, what they endured. And uh, he always showed me steel at the death of his family. But uh, 
he was very troubled by it. Just never really got over it. Just like talking to a, a World War II vet, you know, it's like they actually were exactly. had, to, had to kill or be killed, and the things they saw, it's like yeah, they don't want to just sit around and let me just tell you all the stories. Yeah. You, if you ever talk to a vet that actually liberated one of these concentration camps, uh, you'll gain a, a, a wealth of knowledge. And these guys never got over it. Have you ever heard anyone that's talking with them? Yes, absolutely. I've spoken to some. You have? Yeah. Um, they they just absolutely couldn't fathom what they saw. And they showed such incredible deference and kindness to these people. And many of them were right on the brink of dying. They gave them every piece of food that they had, and a lot of them died from not being able to to digest it. So, uh, But anyway, you, you asked me about my uh, my parents. My father actually ended up in uh, nine different work camps and concentration camps. Jeez. Uh, they, uh, he and his brother made it to uh, uh, the Boog River, which was the demarcation line between Nazi Germany and the Russians. The Russians took half of, uh, of uh, Poland. So they um, uh, made it there. They couldn't get across the river. They uh, were living in fields. Uh, doing whatever they could to survive. My dad actually got a job working, uh, repairing boots. And uh, so he kept, he he and my uh, uncle alive. But the the main goal was to get across the Boog River, to get away from the Nazis. And my uncle managed to do that one day while he was working, and he didn't have the chance to go to tell my father he was going. So uh, my father figured that out, and then, you know, they didn't see each other again till 1958, mm. but uh, my my dad actually was captured by the Germans, and they put him, took him to Belarus, and put him on a road gang uh, that uh, you know would would make roads, uh, uh, airfields. Uh, when they invaded Russia, these people would uh, actually try to push the tanks out of the mud. The, the uh, tanks would, would uh, get mired down in the mud in the, in the, the fall. And uh, so they, they used these slaves, as you, if you will, to do that. Now, they set up work camps for a specific purpose, like to build a, um, an airfield. Mm-hmm. When that was done, they would either kill all the inhabitants or send them to another camp. So he was in several camps. He was a very strong man. Uh, he... Uh, yeah, because they would kill the weak, right? Oh yeah. Like if you showed if you sort of limping or you showed that, like I can't carry this anymore, like well we have no use for you. Absolutely, you you were only of any value if you could do what they what they wanted, and you know the the fallacy in that is every slave in every land and every time at least had the the hope of freedom. You know, I mean, they thought to themselves, eventually I'll be out of this. And slave owners would actually feed their slaves because they were of value. I mean, they didn't treat them well, mm-hmm. but they at least fed them. They didn't, you know. I mean, these guys were working on a thousand calories a day, and uh, you know, and four hours sleep, and and sleeping outside in the in the elements without you know sufficient clothing. So, did you did your dad ever tell you how he got through it? Well, I, I know how he got through it. He ended up in. Uh, Madonic, which was a death camp, 
And while he was there, he uh, was fortunate enough to not be sent to the gas chamber. And, uh, you know, he worked. And then they found out that he knew shoe repair. And that was his, that was his ticket to life because that was a very valuable, you know, asset. Mm-hmm. Uh, while he was there, the, uh, the Germans actually invaded uh, uh, Russia and he, uh, you know, all of a sudden they got all these boots from German, um, uh, you know, soldiers that had been on the Eastern Front for repair. And he said that he actually found toes and pieces of, of, of foot, feet inside wow. these, uh, uh, these, these boots. And so uh, naturally, unbelievable. Uh, na- naturally, he was thrilled because it, it meant that the Germans were losing, you know, or, or uh, being, yeah. being decimated anyway. Yeah. So, uh, giving him a little bit of hope. Yeah. You know, I mean, can you imagine living in that kind of world where it's like, I'm glad to find some toes in somebody else's boots? Like that just tells you like how how evil and how dark and how bad things had gotten. Well, one one thing that uh that he did tell me was that uh the commandant of that camp tried to perfect a um, method of killing multiple people with one bullet. And he would line them up, you know, the tallest uh in the in the front, the shortest in the back. And you know, one on top of the other, just like I'm, I am on this this uh, microphone here, and fire a bullet through uh, the uh, first guy's head, see how many it would kill. Uh, that was actually refined by Amon Geta in the Plashov concentration camp. He he actually got it up to seven people. These guys were just mastering death execution. Satan was alive on the planet Earth. Mm-hmm. Satan actually took over a whole country and made them into beasts. Yeah. And, and you know, look, I'm in the winter of my life. And I have tried to figure it out, tried to understand, tried to forgive, tried to, to, to find solace, and I haven't been able to. Mm-hmm. To this day, I can't understand how it happened. I can't understand. I, can't, I could not hate anybody that much. I mean, even, first of all, I don't believe in communal guilt. So I don't wish any harm to uh, to the German youth or that kind of thing. But I feel like there's something in their psyche that made them amenable to doing this. I just don't understand it. So, but anyway, he, he lived through an incredible uh, period of time. He'd been in, you know, uh, uh, Two concentration camps, several work camps. Maidanek managed to survive that. And then when the Germans saw that they were losing, when they uh, saw that the, the Russians were really getting close, they decided, you know, even then they couldn't give up. They couldn't let up. They were going to kill every Jew. So they packed them onto uh, uh, rail cars and sent them to Austria. And so he ended up in. Uh, Mauthausen, which was a brutal camp also. But they sent him... This is in, you said Austria? Austria. Uh, so anyway, Austria, of course, was part of Germany at that time. Sure, yeah. yeah. So 
he was sent to uh, a subcamp of of um, of Mauthausen called Melk, M E L K, and there they carried stone, stone, uh, uh, and, and I don't even know for what reason, but they carried him up a stairway, and every day, 10, 12 people would fall with the, these uh, stones on their backs and fall to their death. And, and your dad was carrying those as well? Yeah, yeah, but anyway. So at that point, like, they were like, yeah, you can make shoe boots, but like at this point it was like the, the things were getting bad for the Germans. It's kind of like they're getting, they're now, and their fears leading to even more rage, even more killing. They know their time is coming yeah. to an end. So like. Well, they did, they found out that he, he uh, knew how to repair shoes. So again, that saved him, you know, but. Yeah, least, but at this point you said at this camp he's now carrying. Yeah. He's doing something these other guys are. Yeah. He he actually did, yeah. But uh, then they sent him to uh, Abenze, which is in uh, uh, the Salzkammergut in Austria, which is actually close to Salzburg. That's where they have all the salt mines. And uh, at uh, at Ma- at uh, Abenze, they actually uh, built airplanes and armaments underground in these these mines. And, uh, you know, at that point, there was no question. They wanted to kill them. They wanted to starve them to death, work them to death. And ultimately, uh, you know, that was, you know, people know about the gas chambers, but there was uh, the torture and the the uh, uh, demented treatment was just incredible. Oh, a lot of people died before they ever had a chance yeah. to go to the gas chamber. 650 calories a day. Mm. My father, before the war, Weighed 190 pounds, the equivalent of 190 pounds. When he was liberated, he weighed 82 pounds. Man. So, you know, yeah, it's, uh, and, and you just don't realize what hunger will do. I mean, people don't, especially here in the United States, we're all well fed and we're, you know, overfed, actually. But uh, that, that was, uh, hunger will make you into, an animal. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that my father had, and this is what was told to me by other survivors that he had helped during his years in the camps. Um, he had a sense of dignity and he refused to allow them to take that, that away. Um, he was, uh, you know, most they, in, in the, the, uh, the bunks, they would have a capo who was the leader who was, uh, you know, responsible for that group of uh, of inmates, and usually they were either Ukrainians or German criminals. So they had no love for the, for the uh, Jews that they were over. As a matter of fact, they hated them, and they would beat them. I mean, if they had to go to the bathroom at night to the uh, latrine, they would beat the hell out of them. Uh, they absolutely were brutal. And there was a young boy in my father's bunk in this uh, huge uh, Ukrainian uh, capo named Igor uh, was beating the boy. You know, beat him all the time because that was that was what made them feel good because they could exert their power and their their uh, brutality on on weakness, weak weaker people. 
And my father uh, yelled at him, leave him alone, leave him alone. And he just kept beating him. So my father pulled his wooden shoe off and split his skull open. Mm -hmm. So naturally, the Germans weren't pleased about that. But uh, So they gave him uh, 20 lashes with a uh, cat and nine tail. And I saw those uh, scars till the day that they buried him. I mean, Jeez. it was just unbelievable. But uh, And also... There, there were young, young boys, or, you know, uh, teenagers, in these camps, and they, they were the, you know, the most mistreated because they they were so weak, and uh, he would try to make them feel like there were somebody who cared about them. You know, I mean, there wasn't much he could do, but he, he would. Uh, act like a, a father or an older brother to them. If one of them got sick, he'd give them a little bit of his uh, ration. And this was told to me by by people that uh, uh, had observed it. He never told me about this. As a matter of fact, I was born in a displaced persons camp in uh, Torino, Italy. And Explain that to me. Torino. Like the, 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 the displaced persons camp. Yeah. After the war, most of the Polish Jews, Jews from other Western uh, European countries, really didn't want to go back to the country, the countries of their origin. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, a lot of the Poles actually were were as hateful as the Germans were. You know, I mean, if you came back, they figured you came back because you wanted to reclaim your your property. Uh, my dad wanted nothing to do with that. He wanted to go to Israel. So uh, he and my mother met uh, two weeks after the liberation. They were married two weeks later. Um, they were married for uh, 50, 56 years. Mm. <laughs> and uh, he, he died first. She cherished his memory. But actually, they went to uh, the, the UN and the U.S. set up displaced persons camps. And these were a place where they could live until their plans came came to fruition. Um, they went to uh, the the camp there in Torino. They were all over Italy. There were just a, a, a bunch of camps, and the Italian people, even though they were were allies of the Germans, were not like the Germans at all. They were really nice people. They really, really, truly were kind and and. Uh, generous and actually they were very remorseful about what had happened so it was an ideal place to have these these camps now the Haganah which is the Israeli self-defense uh, force actually set up camps in Italy where they would train these people, nurse them back to health train them to uh, be soldiers, farmers, that kind of thing and uh, and then when they could, they would send them over to Israel. The only way to do that at that time was illegally because the British had a um, boycott on Jews going to Israel. They were trying to placate the Arabs. So um, my father's grandest wish was to go to Israel. He wanted to be part of, of reestablishing the uh, uh, Jewish state and uh, we couldn't go because I was born. <laughs> uh, and, you know, uh, 
uh, pregnant women and women with with uh, young children couldn't go because most of the time they had to beach the the ship in order to you know reach Israel, and then they would disperse in, in the land that under you know the British would try to capture them. So anyway, they tried to get him to go, and we would come later. And he refused. He wouldn't allow it. He said, I have a family, and I'm going to take care of them. So this man gave up the one thing that was really important to him. And, you know, I never saw any regret. I never, he never exhibited any sign of having given, given up anything. So where was your mom at during this entire time that your dad's been bounced around? My mother was in Lodz, Poland, and uh, they had a ghetto there that was the longest existing ghetto in all of Europe. Um, there was a madman that uh, was the head of the ghetto, and uh, he actually visualized himself as an, an emperor. But what he did was he established Lodz as a manufacturing hub for the Nazis. And that way he felt like he could actually um, save more Jewish lives by you know, making them important to the Nazis. They made products that were used on the Eastern Front and that the uh, Germans needed in their uh, homeland. So that actually ran until August of 1944. Of course, the war ended in May of 1945. Now, had she not been in that ghetto, she would have been sent to Auschwitz in 1943. And she definitely would not have lived. Uh, she was she was not real strong, but she had a real strong will. And uh, so she actually was sent to uh, Auschwitz in June of 1944. And she passed the um, inspection of Dr. Mengele three different times. Now, What do you mean by that? Well, when they got to, to Auschwitz, the supposed doctors, Mengele was, was one of them, um, actually decided who would live for labor and who would go immediately to the gas chambers. So she lucked out uh, and, and managed to uh, be chosen for labor um, most of the women worked outside in the brutal cold, didn't even last 30 days. She was fortunate in that she was put to work in an IG Farben factory making uh, waterproofing for the German Navy. And um, so she managed to survive that. In January of 1945, the Russians were almost at Auschwitz. And these brutal SS brutes, beasts, who uh, loved tormenting starving people that uh, you know, couldn't, couldn't fend for themselves, had no desire to, to uh, fight the uh, Russian army. So they actually, again, you know, with the... Uh, decision that they were going to finish the Jews off. They weren't just going to run away and leave them. They were going to take them and, and use them for every single thing that they could. 
they had death marches from Auschwitz to the railway. And she survived a, a death march to Rocklau. At that point, they were put on uh, a train that had open gondola cars. And po- the Polish winter is brutal. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's absolutely brutal. And they traveled through the countryside in the Carpathian Mountains to, uh, to Austria in, in the middle of January in an open car. Mm. A third of the people froze to death. You know, I mean, the wind and the, uh, the cold. She was lucky because she was on the inside of, of the people, so she was somewhat uh, uh, protected. Um, she um, was sent to Lentz, Lenzing, which is uh, also in, in the Austrian Salzkammergut. And uh, they, they had a, uh, a women's factory there where uh, 500 girls would work in, in a rayon factory. And they had to inhale those, those chemicals and everything with no protection. Again, if it's possible, they got less food than before. And uh, she told me that all along, she really believed that she was going to survive until she got there. Because when spring came, they would hear the birds and children playing outside. She said she couldn't believe, you know, she, it was kind of surreal. She wondered, how is it possible that mm-hmm. there's a world out there where people mm-hmm. are, are normal? You know, and uh, mm-hmm. she thought at that point that she wasn't going to make it. But uh, she did. She lived through. They were liberated on May the 6th by the American Army. You know, it's <laughs> the rest, rest is, uh, is history. So it's, uh, you know, it's of incredible. course, she was the sole survivor of her mm-hmm. entire family. She could never find another. Nobody else made it. Yeah, none of, none of her family. Dude, how sad. My dad had uh, two brothers that survived and one distant cousin. And uh, out of 200 plus people. Yeah. Jeez. Yes. So, it's anyway, I, uh, I'm i hoping for some enlightenment before they put me in the ground, but I I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've tried to, f- to find a reason, and, you know, I can laugh about it now, but it's mm-hmm. it's really been. I don't think you can know a reason. Yeah. Uh, not that I'm not on this side. Yeah. I, I really thought maybe that. Uh, that you know Jesus will come to me and tell me this is why it happened, but you know I don't think he wants to dwell on it. Yeah, have you ever uh, have you ever read The Horse and His Boy by C.S. Lewis? Yes, C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors. Um, yeah, I, I was curious. I won't go into that any further, but if you've read it, I was going to actually recommend it to you just because there's a scene in there where C.S. Lewis does a great job. Obviously Aslan, who's a Christ-like character that uh, very much, you know, comes to Shasta, this boy who'd experienced so much pain and helps him understand that I was there with you, you know, through it all and and doesn't always explain the things. But uh, anyways, I thank you for sharing that uh, part of the story about your dad and your mom. Um, I don't think there's any words that I can say anything else that that would do justice uh, to just how thankful I am that you're willing to come in and, and, and share that with us. Just a transition. Where exactly did you grow up at? Well, 
we had he had an uncle who had immigrated to uh, the United States in 1919. He'd never met the uncle before, but after the war, um, this uncle started looking to see if there was anybody who had survived. And through an organization called PKO, um, he uh, it was an organization that tried to, uh, you know, uh, link refugees up with with family in the United States and in Australia and Canada. But uh, he found us and he vouched for us to come to the United States, um, and uh, we came over. Uh, we. Uh, Initially, he went to Newport News, Virginia, which is where he lived, and uh, ultimately went to Portsmouth, Virginia. My father found a job there that uh, uh, was pretty good. I mean, he worked from the minute we got off the boat. We came here with $20, mm. and uh, he just worked harder than any man I've ever seen. Managed to become successful. He uh, lived uh, most of his life or in the United States in, in Portsmouth. And then my sister, who was a doctor at Barnes Hospital in uh, St. Louis, asked them to move there, and they did. So uh, that's where he uh, died. Mm. It was, uh, you know, the, the DP camp was so unique. I mean, again... There were no teenagers. There were no old people because they'd all been killed. Man. So all you had were relatively young uh, adults, you know, in their 20s that uh, had a harvest of babies. I mean, there were babies everywhere. You know, everybody had a baby. They wanted to prove that they still could, mm -hmm. and they wanted to start. Uh, there had been so much death, you're yeah. wanting to experience some new life. Exactly. So... I grew up, or you know, my earlier years were uh, in a DP camp with nothing but um, survivors and children my own age. You know, so have you ever thought about how that shaped you? How your life is different? How you view? I mean, obviously that changed your parents. I mean, as opposed to if they've never gone through anything like that, which therefore changed your whole life. Surely. Have you ever thought about how? Yeah, yeah, I've, I've thought about it a lot. I mean, we, uh, you know, the fact that they were relatively normal is just amazing to me, you know, now that I, I'm aware of, uh, of what they, they lived through. And when I think about that, it hurts me. It really does. I became really aware when we came to the United States because, uh, first of all, I remember all the adults uh, sitting together and talking about America and saying, oh, it's it's the land of milk and honey. Uh, the streets are, are paved in gold. Every house is a mansion. And so when we got here, I said to my dad, where's the gold? <laughs> and he said, the gold is the fact that you can live here without anybody uh, killing you, mm. and you can earn whatever you're able to earn and nobody tells you how you have to spend it mm. and the fact that you are free mm. and uh i never lost that i mean that to me was a love for this an appreciation for the freedom oh my parents loved this country so much 
and and so did I. I mean, my father, this concentration camp survivor, who had been in the country for two years, volunteered to uh, uh, go fight in uh, in Korea, and uh, they told him, "Look, you you're better off staying here." I mean, the the American people were so kind. I mean, we lived in a very poor neighborhood, but everybody, all of our Christian neighbors were gentle with my parents, treated them with deference. And, uh, you know, and I wanted nothing more than to be an American. Now, the uh, American Jewish kids were were really pretty nasty. I mean, they they couldn't understand... To them, I was like someone from Mars. I mean, they couldn't understand what I had been through or what my parents had been through. And, you know, there was, for the grace of God, go they. I mean, they, they happened to, their families happened to emigrate here at the turn of the century. But if they hadn't, they'd have been over there and, and lost most of their people too. So really, I didn't have a lot in common with them. And all I wanted to do when I was a young, young uh, high school kid, was play football and mm. drink beer and and, uh, <laughs> and uh, go out. Even if like the guy we had on the podcast yesterday, man, came in and recorded. He's got a, he owns a meadery. <laughs> he was talking about the the beer and the wine that he makes with his honey. Yeah, well, football and beer—that's very American. It was, it was, and that it was uh, to me that was the ultimate uh, ultimate freedom. But you know, I mean, all kids go through stages like that. I really did. I just wanted nothing to do with anything except being an American. How did you get to Paragold? Well, it's kind of strange. Uh, I uh, went to college at the University of Maryland. Uh, actually finished up there when I got out of the service. I uh, uh, went into the uh, Air Force, mm. stationed in Germany. Wow. And did a, That's crazy. Think yeah, about. My mother was scared to death. But anyway... Yeah. And I went over there with a real bad attitude. I wanted, wanted to to fight every German. I wanted to take out, you know, vengeance on them. And and then I, you know, I, I realized I became friends with some of them. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you can't can't hate somebody that that you're a friend with. Mm-hmm. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, but I was torn. I mean, I I knew what they'd done to my my family. When I got back from the service, I did a stint in Vietnam while I was in in, in wow. uh, Europe. Thank you for your service. What did you do in Vietnam? I was uh, in the Air Force, and we used to go out and find bombing sites. You know, I mean, back then we didn't have the the intrusive uh, radar and that kind of thing to locate the uh, North Vietnamese uh, um, hiding places. So we'd have to go out and uh, you know physically find them, mm-hmm. and then you know convey the uh, the coordinates. So it was. Uh, uh, it was an adventure, and I was young and didn't realize how close to death I was. And, uh, you know, but again, I love, I love America. Mm. I'd have done anything. Mm. But uh, it was, it was a, in retrospect, it was just a horrible time. We lost so many wonderful people who didn't get a chance to go to college, to marry, to have children, to, uh, you know, who knows how many geniuses were, were murdered over there 
Yeah. I want to get back to your story of how you got to Paragul, but I'm curious. You've been surrounded by so much death and war and evil. Um, You made a mention to me about your faith right before you started. That you, uh, from what I understand, like you became a Christian later in life. I did. Like, I'm, I'm curious, like... I'm still Jewish. I'll always be Jewish. Yeah. How did... Well, that my question was just around how... Um, there's a lot of people who wrestle with the idea of God because evil exists. And so there are people out there, probably even listening to this right now, it's like, if there is a God who's good and is in control, then how does he allow the Holocaust? Or how does he allow the Vietnam War? Or, you know, like he sees these kids dying or being gassed and like he does nothing about it? Like, no, thank you. I don't want that God. So like, was that something that was ever a question in your mind? And then like, how have you wrestled with that? Like, well, I will tell you, I think that uh, uh, it's best summed up by that poem about the, the guy walking through the sand and there's two sets of, of uh, footprints and then he chastises uh, uh, Jesus for not uh, uh, being there at the most difficult time of his life. And gee, I, I get emotional. But... Uh, Jesus says to him, it was then that I carried you. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the way it was with me. I mean, I, I've i really been obsessed with, with, with this most of my life. And I wasn't getting anywhere. But there was a period in my life before I uh, met my, my wife that uh, it was very dark. I mean, I still functioned brilliantly in the, in the corporate world. I did, did that well. But that was the only part of my life that was well. And uh, you said a lot of hatred. Hatred, and you know, of course, that's like drinking poison and hoping that you, yeah, the rat angry. dies. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So basically, it was a lot, a lot more than just that. I mean, I really was questioning why, why am I here, and why are all these others not? You know, what what about me, especially? And I just needed. I needed to have some comfort. And one night in my sleep, Jesus came to me and he said, let me help you. Were you talking to him before that? Or like, was this just like out of nowhere? You weren't even thinking about him. No, I wasn't thinking about him, but I was. When you say he came to you, I want, I mean, I think I know what you mean by that, but I want other people to, uh, the other people who's listening to this right now, who are like, I just thought I was going to listen to the Holocaust stuff like that's going to be maybe foreign language to some people. What do you mean he came to you? He came to me when I was dreaming about something horrible. And his face was right next to me. And he said, let me help you. Mm-hmm. Let me help you. Give me your hand. And, you know, I mean, now there, there were, there was a preamble to this. I mean, I, was always impressed and and very well you know uh, received and, and kind of believed that that there you know there there was something to Jesus because you know most of the christian people he was pe- more than just a good teacher yeah, yeah most of the christian people i i met lived really good lives you know i mean mm. good in the sense that it wasn't just all about them mm. and uh, and that affected me that was something that i always like you, it's safe to say that like their love that yeah. you saw in their lives yeah, lo- was love. a great witness. Yeah. 
and and also uh, you know I was always impressed about uh, how devout they were to to their uh, holidays and I, I I really wanted something like that that's really incredible thanks you for sharing that um, how did you actually end up getting to Paragold? Okay, so basically after uh, I uh, finished college and was working, I uh, had an opportunity to either take over the operations in Little Rock, Arkansas, or Huntsville, Alabama. Mm. And I was kind of at loose ends, so I flipped a coin and uh, ended up in Little Rock. And everybody said, oh, golly, you're going going to Little Rock? They ride around in mules and they wear... (laughs) You know, bib overalls. <laughs> not too far from the truth. Yeah. But no, it was not near the I mean, I got off that plane, and I got to tell you that I just, I, I just loved the, the uh, people and mm-hmm. uh, the, you know, the landscape and the country. I mean, when I got there, they didn't even have I-630 in Little Rock. You had to go through 9th Street to get downtown to the uh, airport. So it was... Uh, uh, it was a wonderful experience. I loved it. And th- that's where I met my wife, who was uh, working as a vice president for um, Cranford Johnson Hunt, which is a regional uh, advertising agency. And she was from Paragould. So, um, you know, we we met, and then she brought me to Paragould to, to meet her family. And, um, uh, of course, Paragould was a different place then. Mm-hmm. It was that was how long ago? That was uh, 45, 46 years ago. Yeah, a little different. Yeah. So, and at that time, uh, Paragould had under 10,000 people. Mm-hmm. So now it's close to 30,000. Yeah. And, and they didn't have, didn't have a, a McDonald's or anything else. Was, yeah, you can't be going anywhere without a McDonald's, man. Yeah. So how long have you been here, like living here? We moved here two years ago. We re- actually lived in, uh, uh, when I got promoted to VP of sales, they wanted me to live on the East Coast. So we moved to uh, Florida. That was as far east as I was willing to go. Uh, and uh, from, from Little Rock, we'd lived there all along. So when I retired, we uh, and we kept a, uh, a condo in, in Little Rock. So, you know, we have a daughter and son there, but... Uh, uh, we wanted to have our own place where we could take our pets and that kind of thing. So, so we we uh, actually retired on Lake Hamilton in uh, Hot Springs, and uh, we had a beautiful place there, beautiful lifestyle. But Hot Springs got kind of, kind of crazy. We lived in a gated community, and uh, I had a car stolen out of my garage. And in addition to that, people would pull up to our dock on weekends and play rap music all night long. <laughs> so so <laughs> you, you didn't want to be listening to that rap music. Yeah. All night. It got to be, it got to be a little, little much. So I said to her, look, we, we can't stay here. You know, I think about the movie with Clint Eastwood. What's it called? Oh man. The Grand Torino. The Grand Torino. Grand Torino That's what yeah. I'm thinking of. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, we, uh, uh, we were gonna, we we're looking at Little Rock. Little Rock has become kind of crime ridden. And, uh, you know, it has, has population problems. So uh, I said, well, let's, let's go look at Paragool. And she said, are you crazy? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, she has a brother. She's like, do they even have McDonald's there? <laughs> she, she has a brother and a sister that live here. 
So we came up. We spent a month kind of checking out everything, and and she still really didn't want to. And I wanted to. I liked it, you know. Mm. So she, uh, being the, the nice lady she is, she said, okay, yeah, we'll we'll move there. And she really didn't want to. Mm. But um, she's kind of become reaccustomed to it. But uh, it was, uh, that's how we ended up here. We we came up to uh, buy a house not far from where Bill is. But uh, I really have always liked being in town, you know. Mm-hmm. So my brother-in-law had this brick house on uh, on Locust Street. Uh, there there are several really nice houses there. And uh, we looked at it. He w- was going to buy another house. And I said, uh, well, I'll buy this one from you. Mm. And we did. So it, Very cool. It just worked out real, yeah. real easy, simple. Oh, I'm glad that you guys are here. And I'm glad that we've had a chance to, to meet. I feel like there's so much more that I can personally learn from you. And I mean... I'd love to even dive more at some point into talking about your your dad. I, I'm curious, did you, um, before we move into some rapid-fire questions, have you ever read uh, Victor Frankl's book, A Man's Search for Meaning? No. Have you heard of it? No. <laughs> uh, are you a reader? Do you read it all? I do, yes. Um, I might have a copy. Uh, I, can, I can let you borrow, but it's a very short book. You can read it in probably an hour. Uh, it's Victor Frankel, a man search for meaning, but he was in Holo- He was in the Holocaust. I think he was in, he was in a concentration camp. I can't remember which one, but it made me think of your dad whenever you were talking about, or maybe think of this book and you're talking about your dad. Uh, he just mentioned that those who survived the concentration camp um, were those who were able to basically find meaning in the midst of the suffering. And he said that those who gave up and just gave in to the, the fatigue, the hunger, the tired, just gave up and died. They just couldn't find any more meaning for yeah. living. And I was just thinking about your dad, like protecting others, serving others, helping others. Like that is, uh, it, somehow he was able to still find some meaning of like, hey, while I'm here, I'm going to make use. I'm not just going to shrivel up and die. And, um, but it's a great book because he takes basically the concentration camp and he says, if you, if you, if you look at our life, our whole life is basically kind of the cycle of a concentration camp, just spread out much longer. But eventually you're going to all kind of go through this. You're all going to suffer. You're all going to eventually die. You're going to have hardship. You're going to have loss, right? You're going to kind of counter evil to some extent. And he says that basically in order for us to live well, we've got to find meaning in the midst of the suffering, which sounds like even what you experienced when you had – your encounter with Jesus of just kind of like, why am I here? What's my purpose? And it sounds like, I guess you would say that's what Jesus really gave to you. He did. And actually I I think that I equated what he went through to what my family went through. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I mean, there, there are lambs in every, every walk of life. And he was the original lamb. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, you know, because of the Holocaust, there's an Israel again. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I think that 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 was part of uh, of my awakening. You know, the fact that uh, I, I could not deny him anymore. Mm-hmm. I could not. I mean, he was truly in my heart and took me through the darkest time of my life. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, uh, you know, I found this this church here that uh, is really full of people that that live the uh 
you know, the, the, the right life. And I, I, I'm glad to be part of that. Yeah. So, uh, well, I know, I know brother Barry and I know Bill and, uh, love both those men. Yeah. So. They're, they're exceptional human beings. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. Well, I'd love to, uh, for the sake of time, just move into some rapid fire questions. Please. And so yeah. if you're ready for it, I'll start firing them your way. I'm ready. Number one, what is the last movie or show that you watched? Or if you don't watch TV, what's the last book you read? Well, the last book I read was uh, by Ronald Balson, and it was uh, uh, a book about, about the Holocaust. Actually, he, uh, uh, it was We Were Brothers, and it, it's about uh, a family in Poland that actually had a dear friend that was Polish, and they gave him all their uh, belongings to, to take care of because everything was taken away by the Germans, and uh, he actually became a uh, a collaborator. So mm. very <laughs> nice. Well, you were very knowledgeable on the subject. I could tell you were well read in that area, which I can understand why. Um, what is your favorite band? Favorite band uh, would be uh, you mean current band or yeah, whatever of all time. Yeah, if you want to go that route or current. Well, I think uh, that. My favorite uh, entertainer was uh, uh, Willie Nelson. Okay, and his band. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a popular Arkansas choice. So it's well, like a, you're like a native man when you talk that way. I, I think Willie is probably one of the nicest human beings you'd ever meet. He really does a lot for for people that are less uh, fortunate than he is, and he has an incredible talent. You have a favorite song by him? Yeah, uh, on the road again. That's one of his best, right? One of his most popular. Um, what is your favorite meal? Favorite meal would be Popeye's fried chicken. Hey, come on. <laughs> Some good stuff. Get you a little biscuit in there. Yeah, biscuit. Uh, what's on your nightstand right now? Well, uh, medications. <laughs> Keep me alive. <laughs> you said you're in the twilight of life. So. Yeah. yeah, I'm in God's waiting room. No question. <laughs> That's awesome. But uh, a lot of medications, and I have... Uh, a book I'm reading um, that, uh, and, and a Bible because my wife and I do uh, Bible study. So uh, that's about it. Great. Give us a snapshot of just an ordinary moment in your life that brings you great joy. That would be uh, the day that I uh, came back from Vietnam because by that point I realized how precarious <laughs> was mm-hmm. and i realized that i had bitten a bullet and survived it so it was all those things you once took for granted all of a sudden now you're glad to have them huh? yeah it, it kind of starts happening to you when you're a short time or when you've got like two weeks left and you're still out there uh you know doing doing your job and you think to yourself yeah i can't die this close to <laughs> oh to man i bet <laughs> Yeah, I bet. Uh, last question. What is one thing that you're deeply grateful for right now? My wife. She's been uh, uh, she's been everything to me. And uh, she uh, she's a Christian. And actually, when we married, uh, you know, it wasn't a crowd pleaser on either side. You know, I mean, Jewish people didn't marry outside their, their religion. 
and uh, her uh, her family wasn't thrilled that she was, mm-hmm. you know, marrying a, a Jew. But we we kind of won them all over. Actually, uh, in Judaism, they would uh, uh, tear their clothing, cover the mirrors, and sit shiva for you, which is mourning, as if you were dead. And I was prepared for that. I mean, I uh, thought, well, that may happen. But uh, I wasn't going to give her up, and you know, and her family came around. So you know, now sounds like you made a good decision. Yeah, yeah. We. Uh, and that's another thing. Jesus brought her to me. Mm. I was supposed to meet her. Mm. So it uh, it all worked out. Well, I uh, have really enjoyed getting to meet you. I hope that we get to hang out again soon. Maybe you, me, and Bill can go grab some breakfast or lunch together. That'd be wonderful. Point. That'd be wonderful. So. And I'll, I do intend to uh, visit your church oh, yeah. as, a, as a visitor. Yeah. yeah, well, you're welcome to visit any time. Bill used to come, actually, uh, to the early service until we changed the time. <laughs> and now he can't make it. So, uh, Al, thanks so much for coming on. I really enjoyed the time. Thank you very much. I appreciate you. All right, and that was Al Brungberg. What an incredible story. Yeah, heartbreaking and incredibly tragic, and that's one of those you can just sit down. And you can, I, literally, for me at least, I could sit down and mm-hmm. talk to him forever. I felt there's so many lessons, yeah. so many layers, yeah, to that story. Uh, it's it's crazy. Like, you know, people sometimes they talk about when we start this podcast. So, like, you know, you're gonna run out of people to interview. Yeah, like you got to right. Like, like you're gonna run out. I mean, I don't even know what episode this is gonna be. Um, I didn't even know this guy. I didn't even know of him until like three weeks ago. Yeah. And he's been living in Paragold mm-hmm. since we started the podcast. Yeah. That's crazy to me. It's crazy. I mean, a town our size has so many incredible people. And I think, like, this is just, you know, one big takeaway for me. Anytime I leave a conversation like this, get to know your neighbors. Yeah. Just start there. It's crazy to me. He talked about going over there with such hatred towards Germans, but then he started to get to know people. And it's like, you can't hate people that you get to know. Mm-hmm. I can't remember exactly how he said it, but like, how much of a life lesson is that for us in the social media world where we get so angry at people that yeah. don't really exist in our minds because it's all theoretical on online. Yeah, yeah. Like, and you're, you're talking about this at even a deeper level than I was thinking, but like, absolutely. If, like, I'm thinking you have so many interesting people that you can learn from. Yeah. But to your point... Also, the more that you learn from others and you listen mm-hmm. to others, the closer you get to them, the lot less likely you are to hate them. Mm-hmm. Empathy. I'm convinced of that, yeah. So, hey, if you're still listening, thanks so much for tuning in. Um, if you've not already done so, please check us out on our different social media platforms. Uh, you can actually go back and watch a whole bunch of videos on the food tour. Um, that was a lot of fun that we on did YouTube. recently. On, well, it's on YouTube, yeah, and it's on uh, Facebook. You can scroll down there and you'll be able to see it on our feed. Um, but but speaking of Facebook, go give us a like there. Follow us. We're also on Instagram. Um, and we have a, a website, paragolpodcast.com. So also, if you've not done this, please go, whatever you're listening on right now, if it's Spotify, uh, Apple, Whatever it may be, give us a five-star rating. Uh, That's not just about, like, boosting our ego, but it is about helping people to find us more quickly and learn about all the incredible people living in our city. So, as always, thanks for listening. Until next time.